Podcast episode one. We're here to help you discover your future in space. We're so happy to have you here today. Thanks for being here and joining us. I'm Holly Malier, your host, and let's take it away. have an amazing guest for our very first ever Cities in Space podcast. Rocket scientist, founder of University of Texas Rocket and Engineering Lab, co-founder of Founding Up, which I do want to talk about a little later today, former CTO of Hypersciences, AI expert, science advisor on numerous fronts, entrepreneur, storyteller. I mean, this list goes on and on. Welcome, Dr. Leon Vanstone. Hi, Thank Leon. you. Welcome back. Welcome back. I know. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to have uh, done the first two episodes of your. You've done a lot with us. I have done a lot. You've done a show. lot. Um, How's it going today? From those humble origins, huh? Yes. It's Cities humble. in Space back in like 2016? 2015. Oof. Wow. So it's not just me who's excited to be hosting you today, because like you said, you have joined us at Steam Space for so many things. I have, yeah. For Cities in Space, our competitions, our conferences, our leadership summits. I mean, again, goes on and on. So literally thousands of students have listened to you speak over the past yeah, nine it's years. Yeah, it's unfortunate for them. Yeah, well, you know, they put up with it anyway. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm glad they're game. Anyway, no, for real, you're really loved in our world, and we are really happy that you are here with us today. No, I appreciate that. So audience and Leon, a little bit about our show. Our mission is to reach every student everywhere. We want to create excitement about current developments in the space industry and introduce opportunities where students might want to get involved, whether it be in areas of engineering, space policy, agriculture, the arts, or guess what, Leon? Rocket science. We want all students to start seeing how they can be a part of this exciting and fast-developing field. So, Leon, what makes our podcast special is that a week before every interview, we give students the opportunity to submit questions mm -hmm. for you, for the podcast. We can't promise to get to all of them, but we really want them to be able to engage with you, right? right. Sure. Um, we also provide a few essential questions and some projects teachers can integrate into their classroom for the podcast because we gear this to the classroom. After every podcast, we'll post it to our website so teachers and students can continue to learn from the questions asked and materials presented. It's all for you students. But, you know, 
You also don't have to be a student to absolutely love our podcast. So I can I can actually email questions in. Uh, no. Dear no. Holly. Uh, well, maybe. Okay. Yes. Anyone <laughs> can. The questions are really for the students, but anyone can fall in love with our podcast. We welcome you. So we've actually received some really great questions for you for this podcast today. So I'm very excited. No holds barred. Super difficult. Oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. All right. Uh, So I want to get going and I want to jump in by doing a little warm up with three questions. Are you game? Sure. Let's go. Let's go. Brace yourself. Question time. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Question numero uno. The space industry is moving so fast these days, as I think we all are very aware of. What is one thing you've heard lately or seen lately that's made you excited, nod, or say, holy moly, wow? You know, for me at the moment, it's not any individual technology so much as it is just this explosion in, in not literal, don't worry, people, although I'm sure somewhere, but... um. <laughs> This explosion in the space sector. So if you know, if you go back, well, one, if you go back, let's you know the context here is really important. I think if you go back to, and your fact checkers will get me, I'm sure, but off the top of my head, something like 1903, the Wright brothers, for the first time in known human history at least, were leaving the floor with powered flight, and it is mind-boggling, I think, to remember that. In 2013, uh, the first human-made object left the solar system. So at 110 years as a species, we went from not being able to leave the floor to leaving our solar system, like outside of the yeah. heliosphere. Yeah. And so context is everything. And the, and the rate at which this is speeding up, I think, is is staggering. And so for reasons that I won't go into too much, when the Cold War ended and sort of NASA became what we recognize it as today, a lot of that, you know, they, did, they didn't want private industry in space. That was sort of the whole point. They wanted a, a one group of people all doing it together, moving it forward. And what was nice about SpaceX was it was sort of a a change then in the position of a lot of countries as to how they were going to run their space programs. And so, you know, SpaceX popped up and then, you know, Blue Origin. And then in the wake of that, you had sort of the, the new space, you know, private satellite companies, and then Firefly Aerospace just up the road, along with everyone else and, you know, Relativity Space and the list goes on and on. And now there's the third wave of these new space companies, yeah. right, yeah. that are also coming out. Rocket companies start all the time. You're, a, you know, you're starting to see it become a real industry. And, and that's important because when you get out, if you, if you think about going to space or you think about the space industry, it fundamentally needs to be cheap. About out of the seven to eight billion people currently on this planet, you know, how many have even been on an airplane? Tell me, tell me. About two billion. So what is that? Twenty five percent of the world's population. One in four. Hopefully, don't don't check that anyone. Um, <laughs> one in four, right? People. And so, do you know how many people have ever been to space? Not. I would say it's less than a thousand. I would say eight hundred. I think it's less off the top of my head, but it's less than a thousand. Right, okay. which is a minuscule percentage. That's one millionth of all of humans currently alive have ever been to space. And so what extent you can even say then that space humans are a space-faring species is unclear to me because 
It's not like we've all made, really many of us have gone. And if you want to change that, even to get it close to the to the aeroplane industry where it's one in four, things have to get that level of cheap. And for that to be happen, you need a whole industry, right? Not just one-off technologies, not just ones. You need supply chains. You need the ability to buy things off the shelf, engines, rocket engines, standardization, all of this stuff. And right, right. That to me is really where the industry is going. And that's really nice to see. Because now companies can exist that don't have to solve every problem for themselves. They can just buy someone else's rocket engine or buy buy a you know a box on a net on a on a rocket that'll put their satellite in orbit or whatever it is. But right. those are, I think, you know, it's the birth of a, a real industry. Well, I mean, and that's something that we've been really aware of, you know, with Steam Space and doing cities and spaces. You know, we see that it's very necessary to build this pipeline for this new industry. Because there's going to be so many arenas to be working in this field that a lot of people might not think. I mean, and to go to our second question, right, this is a little bit in line with that, where we are in terms of space travel and research. There's so much going on globally. And every month it feels like new achievements are happening in multiple countries. I mean, so... As far as the next challenges go for us as this new industry is really exploding and developing, what do you think the next big hurdles and challenges are? Yeah, I mean, and you touched on it there. You know, one of the things is this huge skill gap. By design, the State Department in the U.S. and many other countries made it very hard to learn how to do rocket science. You know, not going into the geopolitics of it too much, although it is difficult to avoid. It was thought, you know, it was the, the idea was the Western world was in front. You know, Russia was there with us and we kind of wanted to kind of keep it that way. We didn't want to rock the boat. We didn't want all these other people going to space and then you'd have to compete too, which ended right. up happening anyway. Right. But so instead what they did was they made it very difficult to teach any of these topics. Um, and that what that meant was no one learned them. Right, a lot of academics eventually gave up teaching and these kind of things, and now there's this huge skills gap. And in fact, you mentioned at the beginning that you know the Texas Rocket Engineering Lab or Trell, as we called it. Right, mm -hmm. the point in that lab, I used to say this regularly: Trell was not an organization that built rockets. Trell was an organization that built people that built rockets. Right, right. It was it was a pipeline so that you could come into university and very clearly see a roadmap from how you came in at 18 to how you got a job at SpaceX. Right. And routinely, almost everyone that came out of that lab found jobs in space companies. It wasn't hard, you know. And so that's probably the biggest gap is just the raw talent in terms of engineering. It's the same in hypersonics as well, which, you know, it, it, there's a boom in the industry and, and, the, and they do become linked. The space industry and hypersonics tether together because uh, if you want a space plane, then you have to figure out hypersonics. Yeah. You've already mentioned so many of these things. So when we think about game changers... Right. So what, 2011, space shuttle closed down. There's there's these certain kind of little markers in mm. my imagination. Um, we have this big rise of commercial space. Now we have this new wave and we have reusable launch systems going on. So how have these like big leaps really changed everything in terms of space travel and the possibility of settlement? And I'd like to throw another little thing in there since, you know, in addition to being a rocket scientist, you are quite the AI expert. How has AI kind of interwoven with this in the space industry and how will it support as we move into this research exploration and hopefully settlement? 
starting at the beginning then of that question with the progress of technology, I suppose you you do have to frame what's happened in space in the broader context of the space race. Yeah. So space is a d- domain of war. It's a theater of war. It's the fourth theater of war with land, sea, air, space, and then cyber being all of them. Right. And what effectively happened at the collapse of the Soviet Union was everyone agreed that going to space and trying to keep up with each other, the space race was expensive, and we'd all rather not bother. And so everyone banded together, the Russians, Americans, and everyone else, um, with the money to play, basically. And they formed the ISS and intentionally did not accelerate any space technology so that it wouldn't be... Same with the nukes, right? Both agreed. Right. And uh, the destabilizing factor here was uh, China. China space program so they wanted to come play but we wouldn't let them because they're all of their astronauts are military based and nasa was a purely civilian endeavor and you had to be able to audit each other and the chinese didn't want that so they started their own space program and everyone sort of laughed to begin with and the short of that story is they're not laughing now so they are not (laughs) moving quickly yeah very quickly and along the way america had lost its ability to launch and so was relying on russia the, NASA was very much looking for a partner to do exactly what SpaceX did. NASA doesn't build its own rockets. It's never built its own rockets. It's always been a commercial partner. They're called ULA, United Launch Alliance. They've been around for decades. They are mm-hmm. as old mm-hmm. as the dinosaurs, I assume. And they clearly weren't the answer. And so they brought in around the 2010 mark, got their space station to stay in orbit. And then what culminated the whole thing, and maybe it was later than that, anyway... Um, someone can write me an angry email, I'm sure. But what happened was China basically said, we're going to the moon. A lot of NASA wants to go to Mars. There's a lot of guys there that signed up so that they could go to Mars. And they're really hell-bent on that. But but from a logistical standpoint and the reality of expanding you know, out into the stars, you have to think of the moon basically as a dry dock to space, right? As As the saying goes, getting to orbit is halfway to anywhere. That's if you right. ever look at a rocket, you know, just by length, the bottom three quarters of it only get you into the orbit of Earth, right? And then the, the last quarter of it throws you to Mars, wherever this thing is going. And so going to the moon is a strategically very important piece. That's why America won the space race. And so when a series of you know events happened that are, that were not at all coincidental. The Chinese said they were going to the moon to build a permanent base. This was shortly after the success of their second station. So people believed they could do it. Trump announces the creation of the Space Force. And people chuckled at the time, and it was kind of funny. But You know, that's a whole mixed bag. I, I see chuckling. I see a lot less chuckling. The giggle factor has quieted down on so many things but then there there's it a helped lot that of ex- comedy went away yeah yeah <laughs> the comedy did go away a little that, bit well, like the literal the guy from the office right like he literally <laughs> but yeah that's a mix well you know this is interesting so I, I have two questions from students that are around this topic sarah who's a high school student wanted to talk about the moon and she said i've heard that launching rockets from the moon or above the moon have a better chance of getting us to deep space and mars again mars right is this true and if so how is gravity really affecting this so much why is this so adventation to launching from the moon or above the moon yeah i mean you're in a gravity well right 
So, yeah, you've got to get out. Imagine you're in a giant hole and you have to climb a ladder. You have to climb that ladder with an enormous rucksack on that's full of rocks. Yep. And you're going, you're going exploring. You've got an enormous backpack on with all your tin food in it. And you have to first have to climb out of an enormous hole in the ground up a ladder. The shorter that ladder is, the more exploring you can do at the top, the more you can carry with you, right? And so if you can go to the moon, you are already in orbit of the Earth. And so, and if you can build a rocket on the moon using the resources from the moon, then it's far easier, you know, to launch off of the moon already in orbit of the Earth from something with a lower, lower gravity than the Earth itself. Right. Um, it's just a lot easier to get out into the solar system and do the exploring you want to do. Yeah. And there's no atmosphere, which is a bonus, because well, then you can catapult satellites into orbit. And, I, and I've noticed a lot of private companies are really rolling with this or roaring with this, how, zooming with this, um, for the moon being a way station to deeper space. And I've seen things basically like gas stations and floating, la all these ideas. Yeah, you need all, you need all this infrastructure, the, right? You need all of it, right? Um, Elaine from middle school asked, and this is kind of in this whole line set of how has this new privatization of space over the past, what, 15, 20 years ish, yeah. ish affected your job. What do you think the future of space and rocket science industry is going to be with this privatization boom? I mean, it's, it's hard to emphasize just enough how theoretical rockets aren't right. <laughs> it's an implementation problem. We solved this problem in the 60s we've already gone to the moon we already did it theoretically from a mathematical standpoint it's done and you can figure it out with a slide ruler and computer programs on punch cards this is not a theoretically difficult problem what's hard about it is you need a machine that functions excellently and if even the slightest thing goes wrong it explodes or everyone dies normally both the point being that it's the springing up of all this industry, right? And and so it's gone from me having to solve every tiny problem I have along the way, which necessitates enormous companies and enormous numbers of people and enormous amounts of reinventing the wheel, mm -hmm. right? To to a to a space where I can buy a rocket engine of pretty much any size I want off the shelf at a very reasonable price because I don't have to do all the development and the testing. Yeah. And, and I can just install it in my rocket or I can stick it on my satellite or whatever. And and again, this is what mature industries look like. You know, it means companies are getting more specific in the products that they do. Mm -hmm. Companies are seeing more and more niches and opportunity where previously it would have been impossible, you know? Yeah, it, it's exciting, you it know? It is, it's, and it's a good thing, I right? mean, I think all of the reusable launch things that have happened, it, that's exciting in itself. I mean, that's really been a revolution, right? To make more opportunities, right? Because you don't have to throw out it so much. Help. You don't have to go completely back to the drawing board. But Again, I hear you saying that new technology needs to be invented and probably fairly promptly to well, move well, like, this forward. Technology in the sense that you need people to build stuff you can use, but not technology in the sense that you're waiting for some bold new science right. to be discovered. Right. I don't need I don't actually need the scientists to invent new stuff. So, you know, to get a few thousand people living up there working. You kinda want it to be like Antarctica, right? There's right. a couple thousand people out there. Yeah, it's right. tough and it's expensive, but it's not that expensive. Right. You can send a few PhDs. Because you'd like to see NASA turn into yeah. the FAA, basically. Right. Event and at one point in time, you know, the American government made all of its airplanes. Back in the day. Back in the day. 
So, okay, a little personal. Like, now you're a rocket scientist. You're an advisor. All of these amazing things. But you had, on your personal path, you had a little bit of a meandering road. Yeah. Getting from childhood to where you are now. And I feel like so many times, you know, when you're on your path in your career, as you get older, it's not a straight line. Nope. You know, we zigzag. I know I've zigzagged a lot. So I wondered if you'd be willing to share just a little bit to our audience of how you got from there to here. As we kind of hinted at, right? So I, I grew up in England. Um, I You don't say. I do oh say. Call blimey. You couldn't tell, Governor. I had no idea. Anyway. Mm, <laughs> so I anyway, so I grew up okay. in England. I'm a kid. I like... Uh, trains, actually, I suppose when I was quite young, but also rockets and planes. I remember my father taking me to the science museum and being very fascinated by plane engines. I couldn't understand how just something that seemed like a giant metal hunk could somehow whoosh me through the sky on a plane. And but I largely forgot about that as I got older. Um, you know, the school I was at wasn't great. I suppose I could say I grew up in an English school of a project. And they were more concerned with whether or not it was failing. So it was like the grade boundaries between E and F and the grade boundaries between C and D were where they got most of their money. So um, I wasn't an enormous concern. But luckily, someone basically at a careers fair changed the entire trajectory of my life. Yeah. Which is no small part of the reason I do things like this. Well, so I go, I'm I'm 17 and a man called Mr. Sizer, Anthony Sizer was this man's name. He comes to 17-year-old Leon, who, by the way, at this point could not be trusted to to make cereal and says, that's it. Choose choose what you want to do with the rest of your life. Um, Choose your career for the rest of your life at 17, right? Which is just a ridiculous question. I mean, I couldn't even tell you that answer now. And um, I'm a little bit older than 17, unfortunately, but... (laughs) I thought, well, what do I like? And I thought I liked planes and rockets and I like math and science, or at least I dislike them the least would probably be the most accurate way of putting that. And I go to this careers fair and I meet this gray head old man at the back of the room who could well be dead at this point. Hard to say. He was retired. So, whereas I'm just tired, but uh, that's a different <laughs> story. So, and I said to him, look, I like rockets and planes. What should I do? And he said, you should do aeronautical engineering at this place called Imperial College London that I'd never even heard of. So I went and I was very lucky more than anything that I got the grades I needed. And they said, yes. And so I did that. I did aeronautical engineering. I got my master's and I decided I hated academia. I thought to myself, the last time I was really having a good time was when I was doing my research, which was on insect flight. Fascinating topic. Anyone out there? I cover quite a Reynolds range, it seems. And uh, Insect Insect flight? flight. Yeah, dragonflies and mayflies are fascinating, actually, in the way that they fly. They're very unique. And also uh, some of the most successful hunters with a 93% success rate on on hunting they fly yeah they fly better than almost any other insects but anyway so i thought well i i did i was having fun when i was doing a phd so i I went back to imperial and i imperial gives me this they say yes i can come do a phd it's in hypersonics which at the time was a dead field it wasn't even dying it was just dead i happened to have a good mentor in the department one of the professors um we would drink beer occasionally and he said to me, if you want to be an academic, don't go into hypersonics. There's no money in it at all. So you did? And so actually everything I, by pure luck, do not, like, do not try to repeat this, children. Like, this advice is basically like liquidate your assets, buy lottery tickets. Okay, like this is a pure fluke outcome. Right when I was up for finishing this, the U.S. was massively ramping up university hypersonics 
and high speed everything you know, aerodynamic research mm. and they had no one to hire because they refused to teach it to anyone so there was a small pool of people a bunch of people came out of australia actually and um and me got dragged over here on the, on the back of that and i came over here to work with ut as a research as a researcher postdoc uh, and then kind of went research track for a while with them and that was kind of what led to me starting the texas rock the toboggan of destiny yeah something like that <laughs> Um, and that was why, I mean, that was part of the reason because like there's, it, it's, it's, there's no real, there was no real way to do it until quite recently. And now, you know, universities are getting better. They are responding to this and the government too is recognizing it. And it's just been this absolute wild ride. You know, I never, I never, I, I actually remember going back into the science museum because it was actually, it's actually right next to Imperial, the science museum, right at the beginning when I was six that my dad took me to, it was right next to the university I ended up doing my PhD at. Huh. And I remember getting really frustrated i was falling asleep into a book i'm not a good student by the way just you know i was falling asleep into this book i was trying to learn and i decided to take a break and i walked over to the science museum and suddenly i was walking around the rockets just sort of reminiscing at being a child and and the absurdity i suppose of looking i have these memories of looking at these things as kids really poignant memories of looking at these engines as a child and not having any idea how they worked and suddenly realizing that now as an adult i did actually know exactly how they worked um in fact i was doing work back in my office that kind of entirely related to the whole process i'm thinking about your introduction and all these labels and titles I gave you, you know, co-founder of this, science advisor not, to this. Did not email uh, those CTO, in, right? I found them. I, I, know, I, I do know how to find things on the Google. All of these things. I mean, you've done so much. And what's your favorite thing so far? I mean, what are you? what have you really loved so far? So Trow actually was a big highlight. And again, that's University that's of Texas. Lab, yeah. Rocket, Rocket Engineering Lab, lab yeah. And I think, you know, it it occurred to me actually, even as a research scientist, that yeah, unless you get it's it's very hard to know what you'll discover, but the impact you'll have on the world will be to some extent limited. And it sort of dawned on me that the biggest impact I was likely to have was through this rocket lab, was through these people I was teaching, right? Like yeah. every year I taught hundreds of students and mentored, you know, even more. And the lab itself pump, you know, had I think 350 people in it now and all of those people's lives are inexorably changed now for the rest of time give or take yeah. at least until i'm probably dead all because i did that mm. and and that's the value of i think teaching you know and in fact i realized what i needed to start doing was building things with people out of people and so i've been crushing them into tiny cubes and stacking them right so Another thing about the things you've done, currently you're a co-founder of this company, Founding Up. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that because that really rolls into your experience with Trell. Now you're kind of moving into a different mentorship teaching industry. We started Trell, me and about 20 of the students founded it and well, they were you know all part of this founding team. And one thing, it, you know, it's transformational for them, but it was also transformational of me. And one of the things I really noticed was what could what you could do. You know, students with 2.6 GPAs were learning how to hot fire rocket engines because for the first time in their lives, they'd seen an obvious route to from where they were to the thing they wanted to do. Mm. And so the courses they needed to take that were between there and what they wanted became 
things they wanted and needed as opposed to being pointless tasks that had no obvious outcome or benefit to them and, right, and just right. the motivating like here's a roadmap like here you hey you want to do you want to test rocket engines here's a roadmap for doing that do this do this learn this learn that go over there put this together blow yourself up and apply to spacex stop, right stop a little yeah. explosion who hasn't been in a, a little small, explosion? a little scorch small explosion yeah what i I'm currently working on at the moment is an AI sort of enabled med informal mentorship tool. It's impossible to know what the the path someone's going to take is because everyone, the truth of it, everyone takes a rather circuitous path. You know, the average person works in one job for about three and a half years now, and they change careers about three to four times in their life. So founding up is a company that uses a blend of data and AI so that you can talk to yourself. So 17 year old Leon could have talked to some imaginary version of myself hmm. and said, Hey, what do I need to do? What really matters? And by going and looking what others have done, you know, how do you become a rocket scientist? I do want to be a rocket scientist. How do I do that? And you're like, this is what others did to become rocket scientists. These are the places you should go. These are the courses you could take. These are the employers you should be talking to. These are the experiences you need. That's pretty cool. I'm very interested in following that along. Founding up, seeing how that goes. So you mentioned you're not Fa retired. Foundingup.com for oh, anyone. Oh, oh. Yeah, foundingup.com. You mentioned that you're not retired. You're just tired. And I, speaking of tired, <laughs> um, is this, you know, you have a little... A little one I do, now. Yeah. So are you going to instill the love of rocket science into this little boy of yours? The healthy part of parenting is, of course, trying to turn them into a tiny version of yourself that achieves all of your <laughs> failed hopes and dreams. Um, I mean, that's what I think, right? It's like, I didn't get that done. Please do that for me. Obviously, I want to share my interests with him. You know, I remember playing with those little Etsy rocket motor things. Yeah, right? yeah. But I mean, my I, I as an engineer, I just, you know, I used to say this to the kids I used to lecture, right? I was like, if what what is it about rockets? Why is it you like rockets, right? Because from an engineering perspective, there's no difference between a rocket and a washing machine. Absolutely zero. In the way that you make it, in the way that you execute it, both of them have rules and laws that govern how they're made. Both of them need to be made to a certain tolerance and a certain scale. The, you know, the systems engineering process doesn't change. I think I need a t-shirt that has a rocket and a washing machine and a little equal sign between them. All right, get me one. No dip. Get no. me one oh, when you're I at it. You Systems engineering, Systems. and then it's like washing machine, machine rocket equals, right? right? Um, <laughs> well, yeah. And so I can hear the, some engineering father in the background chuckling right now. So what I think it is about rocket scientists is they, they watch too much Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever it is, and they really imagined and saw the future. That's what I did, at least. Right? I watched Star Trek and Star Wars, and I said, I want that. I want that future. It's exciting. I mean, we see so much happening so quickly, but there's also been this, because of all of this, there's been this huge push to in STEM and STEAM fields. We're seeing a lot of pros and a lot of cons, but, but we're also seeing, you know, the value that we've quite often always seen in technological fields and in the space industry where the research for going to space and living in space is actually benefiting the earth and getting applied here so there's right. a lot of great stuff with science that. doesn't care right? it doesn't know. science does not care it doesn't know it was made for space right. so it can't be used on right. earth it's not like right um so we have a couple more student questions i definitely want to get in <laughs> i think let's go with zora she is a middle school student and very interested in physics and science 
and really wants to know, this goes with kind of Trell and founding up and things we've been talking about, how do you recommend that they break into the science community? I mean, obviously you've got to do your work at school. Um, it is hard to overstate how incredibly boring a lot of math can be to learn. It helps if you can pick up hobbies along the way. You know, maker spaces are a great place to go, mm -hmm. both in terms mm -hmm. of being fun, uh, getting you great experience, and then also teaching you why some of that math is actually relevant. Um, you'd be surprised how easy it is to reach out to various institutions. If you are younger, it gets a little harder because obviously you're a minor. But, you know, science isn't a, a place, though, ultimately, right? It's, 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 right, a, right. Um, it's an approach. So as one of my sayings, you know, likes to go is the only difference between doing science and messing around is, is writing it down, right? Going to these makers, like science should be fun. It should be play. You know, it is fun. Like I like building drones, going back to my son, right? Like, yeah, I want to share these things with him, but I want to have fun with him more than anything. Right. I want to launch these right. rockets. I want to build drones with him, little electric go-karts, you know, like the, you know, the closer we come to sort of minor injuries, the better, right? So yeah. So open mind, explore. Maker spaces. Washing machines. I mean, like, and YouTube, but like YouTube is an endless source of really fun home science experiments you can do. We have another student who is really, really interested in black holes. Can you answer a black hole question? Sure. Bailey is in middle school. And hi, I've Bailey. actually, hi, Bailey. I've actually seen Bailey's work at a Cities in Space competition. So Why? they're published, are they? They've published Cities I'm, in Space. I'm sure they've, they're, yeah, we've patented everything okay why does time slow down in and near a black hole and does that also slow down age and illness so if you're falling into a black hole sorry holly bye oh. remember to bang on the library of love that's why you should get into science so you can get out of the black hole but um <laughs> if i'm watching you fall into the black hole you appear to like freeze basically time slows down to me sorry for um, Time slows down me watching you. But for you... But not me. You don't experience that. And so, yes, it does slow down aging, but only from the outside looking in. From your perspective, falling into the black hole looking out, assuming you don't get spaghettified by the weird gravity, uh, the entire entropic death of the universe occurs in front of you and literally everyone you've ever loved wow. dies. Okay. In a, like a split second. So, but okay, before we close... I want to hear really where you see us going over this next, let's say, three to four years, maybe four to five years. Um, and what, I mean, do you have any last words for our brilliant young humans who are listening to you all over the world? All over the world. Yeah. Um, I would expect that you'll see a lot of interesting developments in the space field moving forward. You know, you'd asked about AI and what that really means. And, mm -hmm. and it's honestly quite hard to say. I can think of some immediate applications. One of the things that's just tricky is keeping the astronauts sane. Yeah. Right. They're not, yeah. they're not magic people. And so do you know what? Being alone in a tin can with three people that smells awful, you know, always on the brink of basically dying for 500 days, kind of rubbish. And having someone new to talk to, being able to build, you know, AI models of your family that you can chat with or for your family to be able to talk to an AI representation of you, at least to have some kind of conversation. The big piece I'm still waiting on is the space planes. I'm really interested. The hypersonic component of this is really relevant, the engines especially, because if you can figure that out, you can build genuine space planes, which would in theory get the cost of a, of a ride to space down to about $1,000. Leon, thank you. You're welcome.
for being here today. I always have a really good time talking with you because it's it's smart talking. That's what we say in Texas. No, intellectual and fun as it should be. And I really enjoyed it today. If you audience like what you heard today and learned about, please consider following us on our Cities in Space Facebook, as well as our Insta account at Steaming for Space. And if you'd like to support us, you can help us reach students everywhere. Our next podcast will host another amazing guest, Janet Ivey, founder of Janet's Planet, director of education at Explore Mars, and on the board of governors for the National Space Society, actress, public figure, and producer. She will be talking with us about why everyone is needed in space. This is going to be a good continuation from our talk, Leon. Everyone needed. That is you, audience. It's going to be a great show. I'd like to give special thanks to RNCN for producing this show, Nate Ziven Productions for making our awesome music, and special thanks to our individual corporate and foundation sponsors. We know who you are. And we so appreciate you. And to all of you listeners, thank you so much for being here. Leon. You're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. That was fun. Until next time, everybody. I'm Holly Malier. Keep looking 